0: doing a series in hermeneutics or interpretation or discovering how to interpret the Bible and if you have missed one of these sessions you can go online there's an audio version you can listen to we want you to get caught up we've done canon why do we have these 66 books these 39 in the old testament these 27 in the new testament last week we did context how you read a passage within the context I thought of a good one we didn't talk about last week, but if you were dealing with how Paul speaks of his suffering in 2 Corinthians, then you might want to say, well, how else does Paul speak about suffering in 2 Corinthians? And then how does Paul speak about suffering in 1 and 2 Corinthians? Then how does Paul speak about suffering in his 13 letters? And how does that compare with what Peter would say about suffering in 1 Peter or what the Gospels might say? So then we go from 2 Corinthians to the Corinthian letters to all the letters of Paul to the New Testament, then you might say, how does that compare with ancient Israel saying, how long, O Lord, must we wait? Are you not hearing our cry? That would be a contextual study of a passage in suffering. You see how it works? You build from Paul to the New Testament, then you build on to how it would work in the Old Testament. Tonight, we're going to look at the historical cultural background of a passage, the historical cultural background of a passage. The reality is when Paul writes his letters or Moses writes something, they come from a completely different culture than the culture in which we live and the culture in which we read and write. And so we can't be surprised that The reality is that the culture is different and meanings might be different. And therefore, we have to try to hear this document, this letter, this gospel, this prophet, as it might be heard the very first time. We must put ourselves in the shoes of the writer. We must put ourselves in the shoe of the reader, the listener, the recipient, because they write from their own perspective. For example, in Luke 13, 32, Jesus calls Herod Antipas a fox. Now, what does it mean to call someone a fox in the first century? It might mean something different than it means to call someone a fox today. It's all determined on the cultural context, is it not? For example, when we hear, Jesus say that Herod Antipas is a fox? Does he mean he's cunning, wise, sly? That would be one way you could read a fox. Today, slang for a young woman, if we say she's a fox, does he mean that that Herod's awfully nice-looking, like a nice-looking young woman? That would seem an odd cultural context. And before you giggle too much, a gray-headed, good-looking man is a what? Silver fox, you see? The word fox is used differently then than it is today. Even in our own culture, is it a woman, a, a nice-looking young woman, or a nice-looking old man? We don't know which one a fox is. So we have to ask ourselves, when Jesus says of Herod Antibus, he's a fox, what does that mean? Well, I don't think it's a description of his physical beauty. I don't even think it means he's cunning or wise. I think in the first century context, it meant he was a varmint, a scoundrel, someone that would eat dead meat, powerless, a weakling, someone that had to sneak out at night and get the carnage that others had left because he has no power to do anything on his own. You see? So if you read that text and think it means, well, Jesus is giving some credit for being like an owl, a fox, wise. No. He's a varmint. He's something sneaks out in the night. He has no power. And so, therefore, it is important for us to know the backgrounds. Well, let's look at one a little closer. Uh, turn over your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. Kind of see how the historical context or cultural context. We did the larger con- literary context and now the historical or cultural surrounding for a passage. let's look at Revelation 3. Let's begin in verse 14. This is the letters to the churches, and this one is the letter to the church at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea right? the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I would that you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, Neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the first way we ever read that text goes something like this. We think he's saying, I wish you were on fire for Christ or denied Christ. I wish you were all in or all out because you're somewhere in the middle. I am going to spew you because I'd rather you be all in or all out. You ever read it that way? I don't think it's a very good way to read it, but unless you know the historical context of Laodicea, you don't know how to read it. It's probably best read something like this, that cold is good, refreshing drink, and hot is a good kind of therapeutic drink. It has good too, comfortable like for a bath, but since you're not the hot water from the spring for a bath, and you're not like the cold water that's refreshing to drink, you're somewhere in the middle, you're not good to drink, and you're not hot enough for a bath, you are neither good cold or good hot. You're in the middle, lukewarm, I will spew you out. How might you know that? Well, near Heropolis, Near Laodicea, there are hot springs where people would take a bath. And so hot water was good in Laodicea. It was a way to take a bath. And then there was near Laodicea, the cold stream of Colossae. And so the cold water around Laodicea was refreshing drink. And the hot water was a therapeutic bath. But because you are neither good for drinking or good for bathing, you're just tepid, lukewarm water in the middle, you are not good at all you will be spewed out. You see? Maybe to understand a letter to a church in Laodicea, you have to know something of the terrain, the water supplies, and what's around Laodicea to know that hot or cold. Now, when we use it in our culture, well, she's either hot, she's either hot or cold. She's either on there or off of it, all in or all out. Take that out of the reading of Laodicea. It's not about that. That's something you are most likely bringing to the text. So we have to ask ourselves, how would the original listeners, the original readers, the original hearers take the text? That's a good way to look at it. Now we're gonna move on to the different types of literature in the Old Testament. We've done the literary context and now the historical cultural context now, let's look at the different types of literature that are found in the Old Testament. A real key to life is having the right tool for the job. Now, you've got to have the right tool. A hammer is really good if you want to drive a nail. But have you ever tried to loosen a screw with a hammer? Doesn't work too well. A pipe wrench is great for removing a sink drain, but you ever try to remove a window pane? With the pipe wrench, it doesn't work. So what we're trying to equip you with this evening is if you can identify when you come to an Old Testament passage what kind of literature it is, then you'll know, do I take out the screw? Do I take out the nail? Do I take out the pliers? Do I take out the saw? What do I need? Well, the first type of literature is a narrative. Now, what, just think in your mind for a moment. Let's see if you can come close. You don't have to say it out loud. What percent of the Bible is the Old Testament? What percent of the Bible is the Old Testament? 75% of the Bible is Old Testament. What percent of the Old Testament is a narrative, meaning it's not poetry, it's not apocalyptic Daniel-type or Revelation-type literature, but it's rather a story, a narrative. Well, 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. So if 75% of all of God's word is the Old Testament and nearly half of that is a narrative, you really need a good set of tools to be able to read a narrative. Well, there are different kinds of narratives. One kind is a report. Now, these aren't probably anybody's favorite kind. You don't have to turn to it for time's sake, but I'm going to turn to... 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, one type of narrative is a report of a military campaign. These report narratives just state the facts. It's like an old dragnet. Some of you are old enough, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. There's not a lot woven into a report. Well, listen to this uh, military campaign report in 1 Kings 14, 25. Now, it came about in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he took everything and taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. It's a report. Things have not gone well for God's people in this war. Sometimes a report narrative reports the settlement of the land in Canaan. Who got what? What part of the land? Who were the neighbors? What were the boundaries and the borders? That comes from Judges. Sometimes a report is a, a construction project. You might see this in 1 in Kings where we're building a construction project and we have a report of a construction of a place of worship. Sometimes a report tells us how a place got its name. What is the history of the naming of this place? What event occurred that gave this place its name? Well, How do you read a report? How do you interpret a narrative report? First of all, treat it like Dragnet, just the facts. Don't make more of it than it is. It's reporting the facts, who did what and when. You've got to accept that there's not going to be a lot of devotional content. When you get to these report narratives on your daily Bible reading, it's probably the morning you're not real excited. When you turn over there and get one of these military campaign reports or divisions of the land, so you have to know the devotional content is somewhat limited. And whatever devotional content there is, it is made quite indirectly. And so you must ask yourself, what is this text trying to tell me? What are the subtle signals a writer has woven into the account to convey his message? Well, that's one kind of narrative, the report. Another kind, you like this kind better, and I love it, and we ought to do more of it, is a heroic narrative. Well, we have a a hero. We have a Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy, or we have a a Samson in Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, where we know something about this hero. Well, what are the common elements? Now, you think about Samson. You think about Moses. You think about others. We usually know something about their birth, don't we? We know about Moses floating around. And the river, and the basket, and his birth, and how his life was threatened, and then we usually learn something about the hero's marriage. Then we learn something about their life and their work. We know that Moses tended Jethro's sheep. We know about his time in the royal house, and then we find something out about their death. So. The narrative uses the hero's behavioral norms as positive examples. There's some things Samson did that we should emulate. There's some things Samson did that we should not emulate. But it's a lesson in life. If you're going to succeed, do this like Samson did and do not do this like Samson did. Well, we love that story of Moses, don't we? We learn a lot about him. His birth His marriage, his calling at the burning bush, I'm going to send you, you know, take off your shoes, your own holy ground. We know about his receiving of the law, being the recipient of the law. We know his loyalty to God. Well, within this heroic narrative, there's the really, really big one that we call the epic. And in the epic, the character is so big, and usually the epic character is really, really good. And the epic character almost identifies with a nation, and as this character goes, the whole nation goes. So who can you think about in the Old Testament that might be an epic hero? He's good, and as he goes, the nation goes, and, well, Abraham would be a really good one to think about for the epic hero. Think about Oh Abraham in Genesis twelve through thirty six. We have the promise to Abraham. And all the destiny of all of ancient Israel is to depend upon how things go with Abraham. Abraham in this narrative, this epic narrative, he's the hero, but he must have a what? He must have a son. And so we try to find a son. We have the son of promise that is to be born to Abraham and to Sarah. And so we have the epic hero. Sometimes in the epic narrative we have divine visitors that appear to the patriarch. You can imagine those times in the old Testament when the divine visitors come and tell Sarah she's going to have a child and she laughs. Do you remember do you remember that the epic hero and then God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and then finally that miraculous birth of Isaac to Sarah in her old age. So we have the heroic narrative, the epic hero narrative. Another one we have is the prophet narrative, like Elijah or Elijah, where we learn something about this prophet, and it kind of tells us a lesson we learn from the life of the prophet. I like the one of Daniel, the the prophetic part narrative would be the first six chapters, where we learn that Daniel and his friends are taken away to Babylon and they refuse to eat the king's meat or to drink the king's wine. They want vegetables and water and Daniel refused. When the king says, anybody who's caught praying, how gullible the king is, anybody who's caught praying will be cast in the lion's den and Daniel, knowing the edict of the king, still gets on his knees and where he can be seen. He prays at the time of day of prayer and even if he's caught and cast in the lion's den, he will be faithful and then Shadrach Meshach and Abednego they refused to bow down there before uh, the pagan kings megalomaniacal statue and so the prophet story where there's moral perseverance and you don't give in and you don't conform to the culture like Elijah Elisha or Daniel well how do we interpret or read these kinds of stories First of all, you got to focus on the main character. If you're doing Moses, what do we learn from Moses? Or if you're doing Daniel, what do we learn from Daniel? And then we learn what is good about this hero's life or this prophet's life that we would emulate and what is bad about this hero's life or this prophet's life that we would not emulate. Even Abraham at times is a little bit fearful and fibs a bit about his relationship with Sarah, does he not? Even the perfect hero has a blemish or two. But what are the values that we learn? We look at Daniel, God honors faithfulness. That's what we learn. If Daniel will be faithful and not give himself to the pagan ways, the pagan diet, the pagan king, the pagan worship. God will be faithful, and God delivers Daniel from the lion's den. In Abraham, we learn faithfulness is rewarded. Abraham is a man of faith, and God rewards his faithfulness. There's another kind of narrative, the comedy. Now, when I say comedy, you think about it a little differently. Now, depending which uh, generation you're from, you might be thinking The Office or Seinfeld, if you think comedy. If you're really old, you're thinking Carol Burnett. Uh-oh, I just hit somebody, didn't I? If you're thinking Carol Burnett, or you're thinking I Dream a genie or whatever, when I say comedy, there's that thing that comes in your mind Andy Griffith would come to your mind, that kind of thing where it's funny and it's made to laugh and there's a life lesson in that. Well, comedy is a little bit different, is an Old Testament type of scripture. A comedy is a story that starts out with a bad narrative. A comedy starts out and you're going to have a crash. It looks like it's headed in absolutely the wrong direction. But the comedy ends with, and they lived happily ever after. So it's not funny. It just has a twist in the story that ends away from the tragedy and heads towards a divine narrative, a good ending. Well, what would be some examples of that? So what I want you to be able to do at the end of this is say, and and all these are debatable, is, well, i read the story of Esther. What is the story of Esther? It's a comedy. Doesn't it start out kind of bad? Think about old Esther. It starts out bad. It looks like God's people are in for a very bad situation in Esther. And the trium- the tragedy turns to a triumph. Haman is hung on his own gallows. Do you remember that? Well, comedy has all the twists and plots. If you haven't read Esther in a while, it's it's wonderful. You know, we have, we start out with a beauty contest and those of you who like The Bachelor and Bachelorette, this would be really good for you. You start out with this beauty contest and well, one gets a rose and the rest don't. It goes like that. And then there's the disguise. Esther hides her Jewish identity and doesn't tell who she is. And then there's providential coincidence. There's always the coincidence in the comedy, the timing of the king's insomnia that has him read the old book and reminds him that he owes someone a favor. And then there's the surprise, the unmasking of Haman's plot. And then there's a sudden reversal of the fortunes, the concluding feast, and well, Esther starts out as kind of timid and not wanting to get involved, and by the end, she is the heroine of the story. Is she not? Esther's good, but that's not my favorite comedy in Scripture. My favorite comedy is Joseph. It starts out with a rough story, does it not? You've got a father with a lot of sons. He's not a good dad. He plays favoritism. And one son wears the coat and struts around like a peacock, and his brothers despise him. They throw him in the pit. They tell the father he's dead. They break the father's heart. So there's the dad crying over the loss of the son that he loves. He's sold into slavery. It's a strange story. I mean, we have pride. We have these dreams, interpretation of these dreams. He finds himself down with Potiphar, and he becomes uh, a household ser- servant of Potiphar, and then Potiphar's wife. If the tragedy's not bad enough, Potiphar's wife cries rape, and he's going to prison. And he begins to interpret the dreams. And then, well, they forget to get him out of prison after he interprets the dreams. And then finally, Pharaoh has a dream, and all the magicians and all the diviners and all of Egypt cannot interpret the dream. And so, aha, uh-huh, I remember. There's a guy in prison by the name of Joseph and he can interpret dreams and we have the skinny cows and the fat cows and Joseph says, you better save some grain because the famine's coming and then the Jews run out of grain and everybody knows you gotta go to Egypt to get grain and here comes Joseph's brothers and Joseph recognizes them he weeps and leaves the room comes back he plays the plot and sends them back and tells them they have to bring back benjamin you remember that and he hides a goblet in their sacks it's it's a complex narrative that keeps on going but it gets to the end where he just weeps out loud and says what you meant for evil god used for good comedy you beat me up, threw me in the pit, bloodstained my coat, broke my father's heart. You did everything for evil. Piper's wife called rape on me. I was in the stinking dungeon, the prison. I interpreted dreams, and everybody forgot me. But everything in the evil plot turns out that God has Joseph right where he needs him as the vice president of Egypt in charge of all the grain so that when God's people are starving, they can come and guess who gets a a bountiful supply of grain? You see? Guess who gets the grain? What you meant for evil, God used for good. Comedy, it flips on its head. Haman builds The gallows to hang his enemy and he gets hung, hanged on his own gallows. The comedy. You read the text, know that it might be a comedy. Well, how do you read a comedy? Well, we need to kind of outline, like I did with Joseph, kind of outline the plot. What's going on here? Who's doing what? What is the turning point or the crisis in the plot? The turning point is when Joseph's brothers have to come and get the grain. Character development. Esther begins in her comedy as a reluctant intermediary to a bold, courageous leader. Well, You have to know the development of the character. What is the theme? Well, there's another kind of narrative, and that's the farewell speech. The farewell speech is when Moses or Samuel stand up and have their last word. They warn the people about, in the future, you need to live this way. They give them some clues to carrying forward because they themselves are about to die. It's the farewell speech. It's the ending. It's Moses. It's Samuel. It's all over. And they are saying goodbye. Ask yourself, why did Moses give this farewell speech? What is Samuel trying to say in 1 Samuel 12 in his farewell speech? What is a historical setting? Where is a narrative of God's people at this point when Moses or Samuel gives the farewell speech? And how does that speech relate to the main message of the book? Well, we'll do one more tonight, and that is law. We'll quickly look at law. Now, when you think law, you think, oh, no. Now, I know when it's your daily Bible reading and you wake up and it's Leviticus, you don't go, wow, in the morning, guess what? I get to to read Leviticus. No, you kind of sit by an open window and let the Texas wind blow about three pages and keep keep reading. Wow, got that finished up for today. There's two kinds of basic law in the Old Testament. There's causuistic law. Forget that word. There's if-then law. If you do this, then God will do that. If men quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to bed, then the one who struck the blow will be held responsible if the other gets up and walks around outside with his staff. However, he must pay the injured man for the loss of his time and see that he, and see that he is completely healed. Exodus 21, 18. This if-then law, casuistic law. If you do this, then this will happen. If you commit this offense, then this is a penalty. If-then. The second kind of law is absolute law. Absolute law says, no if to it, you shall not steal. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall honor your father and your mother. It doesn't have to be negative. You see, absolute law. Well, a good question for us is, how do the narrative of laws apply to us today? How does law apply to us today? There is within this law some timeless ethical lesson for us to learn. And Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. In fact, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say to you. You can't be angry in your heart at your brother. So the idea we get that Jesus comes to loosen up the law doesn't really usually work that way. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I'm not just looking at the physical act. I'm looking at the intent. And I said to you, if you're objectifying a woman with lust in your heart, then, well, you're guilty too. So how does the Old Testament law apply to the church? We can't cast it away. It's certainly not enforced for us the same way. By the way, there's 600. I never counted them. One day when I retire, I'm going to count all 613 laws, but that's what I've always read. There's 613 laws. Some of you got some time. Go count them. 613 laws, but aren't they summarized? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you obey these two, you obey the whole law. For if you love your neighbor, you won't steal from him. If you love God with all your heart, you'll want to obey the commandments and be pleasing to God. We must read the law through the lens of Christ. We must read the law through the lens of Christ so that while the law may call for a lamb to be sacrificed, we can look through the lens of the Christ and say, Behold the Lamb of God, the real Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. Or the Lamb in Revelation that is slain, who's paid the price with his blood. For we know, says the writer of Hebrews, that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs can do nothing, but it is the real Lamb of God, takes away our sins so you can't throw the law out so what you do in read the law not the narrative but law another kind of genre is how do I read that through Christ what would Christ say to me about that Christ would say yes murders bad but anger is too yes you've heard it said you shall You shall love your your friend, and you shall hate your enemy, but I say to you, you shall also love your enemy. So ask yourself, when you read a part of the Old Testament, what kind of literature is this that I'm reading? Is this a narrative? Is this a story? And if it's a narrative, is there a hero or heroine, Deborah? Is there a hero or a heroine in this story? Is it a comedy? Does it start out on the wrong path and end up on the right path and everything that men do to mess it up? God straightens out and we end up in Egypt with grain because God has to be erecting the life of Joseph. or God says to Esther, "For such a time as this, you find yourself where you are. Let us pray. God, when we pick up this book, let us ask ourselves, what kind of literature are we reading? What kind of tools do we need to unlock your message to men? What are you trying to say to the hearts of men and women? What are you trying to communicate to us? And may we, with all our studious nature and with all our devotion, try to know what you, are commanding us to do as your people. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.